welcome to another episode of Study Hall. I'm your co-host, Kirsten Wagner. And I'm your co-host, Kate Holdman. And today we are so delighted to have Nicole Elam on from the National Bankers Association. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with the two of you. And Nicole. Nicole, um, I mean, sorry, Kate is out in New York right now dialing in. We can't wait to go live um, with her new gig up in New York City. How are you liking New York, Kate? New York is incredible. I was down in Hudson Yards yesterday, and it's just such a blast. The energy here is palpable and exciting. Loved it. And Nicole has been traveling all around the country. I know you're going to be speaking at Milken in Los Angeles very soon. So exciting. Can you preview some of the topics you'll be chatting about? So two topics around Black women entrepreneurs and how do we get more access to capital and what more do they need besides capital, right? There's been a lot of conversations around capital, 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 but capital is only part of the equation. Most times they often need coaching, access to networks, um, established business relationship and banking relationships. So those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about. And then also fintechs and the value of technology to helping MDIs and CDFIs modernize and how fintechs aren't just disruptors. But if you can utilize them as a partner, you can get further, faster to help the communities that you serve. So excited to be talking about those things. What are your thoughts when you hear statistics that like for of the VC community, only 2% of the VC money is going well to women and then 2% to people of color? Like, is that is that something community banks you think can play an important role on in the early stage seed funding? Yeah. So I think it's not a surprising statistic, right? It's a statistic that you hear a lot of in various aspects. I think the role that banks can play, uh, particularly community banks, along with capital, I think a good role that they can play is helping them with coaching. Oftentimes, people are jumping into this world. uh, They're trying to start a business. They're trying to start something, and they don't have a good view of how it should work, right? So they don't have a good, strong business plan, or maybe they're focusing too much of their money on advertising and not enough on something else. And so helping them get a good business plan together, helping them get relationships with other professional services that they're going to need, I think that's the good value, that coaching is a a good way that uh, community banks can help them thrive survive. And so when you're on the ground speaking with banks, like what are some of the successful partnership models that you're talking about? You know, you look at the ecosystem, you need the capital, but then you need the collaboration and the connection. Um, you know, what are some of the success stories that you're hearing? Yeah. So, so many success stories. I, I'll, I'll call out a couple. So one is the importance of collaboration amongst MDI banks themselves. So last year, the Atlanta Hawks wanted to use black banks to finance their new training facility. Not one bank could do it on their own. So a consortium of black banks came together as part of a loan syndication to help uh, finance this new training facility. So that speaks to the importance of collaboration. You can get further, faster together. Another great one has to do with automated lending. So many of our banks don't have the technology that they need in order to do automated lending, right? So instead of manually underwriting a loan, being able to do it with technology. Well, technology is expensive, right? If you are a bank that is a small bank with an average asset size about $350 million, technology is very expensive to you. But we've been partnering with folks like Upstart, um, Blend, 
and others so that we can do automated lending and small dollar loans and consumer loans. And so that's another big partnership. Finding fintechs that are already in this space, partnering with folks like Lindustry on the small business side. Um, who's doing it well and how can we leverage them and the technology that they have to better serve our communities? So lots of great examples of partnerships that are out there. So much of our podcast is focused on social justice and fintech, yeah. and people don't necessarily marry those two concepts together, but you are on the front lines there with the community banks. Like, What do you see as far as you know, um, innovations around social justice? Yeah, so I think one of the big innovations that I'm seeing around social justice has to do with credit invisibles. So oftentimes when people think about risk, they're like, oh man, low wealth, low income communities, they're so risky, they're so risky. But no, we need to redefine the way that we talk about and think about risk because these folks don't have access to credit for a reason, right? I don't own a home because of redlining. I don't own, own a home because of a historic uh, undervaluation of real estate. And so maybe I'm renting for that very reason. But if you look at my rental history, if you look at the ebbs and flows of my cash flow, you can see that I am certainly credit worthy. So I think a lot of the innovation around not just relying on credit rating agencies, but relying a lot on this real time 2000 data points that you have out there that can assess the worthiness of a person so that you can underwrite their loan. There's a lot of innovation that's happening in that space. Now it's a matter of making sure that regulators and everybody understands it so that we can all get on the same page and it becomes the standard and not something that is quote unquote innovative. I really like your example about the credit invisible, but you know, it's hard to talk about the credit invisible without talking about the unbanked and the unbanked millions of families across the United States. Number one and number two, most reported reason for being unbanked in the U S is first cost and Mm -hmm. secondly, distrust of banks. Do you see the use of fintechs or technology broadly with community banks somehow bridging those gaps for the unbanked and underbanked? I think the thing that fintech does is it allows you to um, two things. It increases access because you can reach more people with technology, right? People doing mobile banking, you can reach them where they already are, regardless of whether they're walking into a branch. But second is around affordability. When you utilize technology, it allows you to operate more efficiently. Now, why does that matter? Because what banks, MDIs are are different than I would say MDIs are minority owned and operated banks, those black and brown banks that are in the communities. Those banks are known for being trusted financial advisors in their communities. So they're not like maybe mainstream financial institutions where there's a lot of distrust because you go back to the first bank where, you know, there there was a lot of mistrust that happened there. So I, I think when you think about black and brown banks, these minority owned and operated banks, they do have established relationships in those communities. So they're bringing that to bear. But what fintechs bring to the table is allowing you to have more and greater access to people through their phones and allowing them to operate their business more efficiently. So I think when you bring the two of those together, it's good, right? Because now it, uh, it's it's more affordable. It's not as expensive. And now you have more access to people and you've got the trust that has already been established in those communities uh, through minority banks. So I think it's a great merger of two worlds. The, the important thing is you really have to have the best Uh, fintech partner. I think so often fintechs may be focused on money, right? You know, and, and they may use democratization of access as their kind of thing that they're pushing forward. But when you uncover the layers, they're not willing to make changes in their system and their product and their service to be more responsive to the needs of their community. So I think you need the right fintech partner uh, and that that'll get you fast, further fast. 
Well, you look at the kind of business models historically of, of giving um, people access to capital who are living paycheck to paycheck. And yeah. you look at kind of the deplorable history of of the payday lending, right, mm-hmm. which came into scrutiny, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Is there still a sense of, um, you know, trying to unravel the hidden fees? Maybe it's not, you know, even same day pay is a big thing, but some of yeah. those charge like $2 a day, which adds up over, you know, the course of a year. Like how are um, some of these fintechs, you know, working together to make sure there's total transparency? on the fee structure that what is, you know, maybe sold as democratization of access to capital actually yeah. is, right? What 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 are your questions you're asking when you see those initiatives? Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you talk about transparency, right? It's it's all about transparency and really being clear about what does this mean, right? So you may say it's this fee, but it's this fee over what amount of time. And so it's really working with them to make sure that they are clearly articulating what their fees are and that they're being as transparent as possible. So there's there's a lot of work that can be done there, but I think, you know, the question isn't isn't sometimes around transparency. I think the question that a number of our banks are asking is around privacy, right? How are you going to be using my customers' data? That is the biggest thing. Transparency is here to stay. I think that that's a staple, but the big thing and the big topic is around privacy that I think banks are really pushing on these fintechs around. That's a great segue into, you know, this is really like a a three-legged stool. You've got the fintechs, you've got the tech piece, you have the banks, but then the third side is you have the regulators and the policymakers Mm -hmm. who are sort of orchestrating the entire ecosystem. How do you see the state of play with regulation? Like, is it working? Could it be improved? You know, like, what is it doing to amplify this work? And then what could maybe be strengthened from the regulatory side uh, moving forward. You know, I think you've seen some intentionality from from regulators, right? You have FDIC that has their their tech lab and they do a lot of sprints. You've got OCC that's got Project Reach and they've got an innovation working group. So there's a lot of conversations that are happening. I think there are two big challenges, though, when it comes to regulators. First is oftentimes there's a disconnect between what's happening uh, on the Hill and at headquarters offices of these regulators and then what's actually happening with examiners, right? So when examiners are going into uh, banks, they are looking at their innovation and saying, can you can you handle this innovation? You're spending money on innovation. It's cutting into your profit. And so there's a disconnect between what examiners are seeing and how they're treating folks around innovation, particularly small banks, right? Big banks are in a whole different sphere when it comes to innovation. So there's a disconnect there with the examination teams that don't understand innovation. I also think that the second big disconnect is the government is slow. Right. Nothing happens overnight. And so it's great that you're talking about innovation. But how is that reflective in policies? There's just this huge lag time there. And when we think about digital assets, talked about, talked about, talked about, there's no real true policies around it. Um, and you can only do so much with a regulatory sandbox. So I think those are the the two biggest things. While there's a lot of things that are happening that you can applaud regulators about, they've got to get the examination teams up to speed about what innovation looks like and means for small banks. And then two, they got to get faster. And I don't I don't know. This is a this is a a big big engine that you're trying to turn and big machine. And I don't know that they're going to be able to move quick enough. You mentioned digital assets, which is, yeah. of course, like a cornerstone of our podcast, right? The cryptocurrency, digital assets. We've had Jennifer Lasseter mm-hmm. on. We always give her a shout out for Digital Dollar Project. Amazing, um, you know, kind of experts in crypto. What are the key questions that are top of mind from community bank perspectives of, you know, what next? What are people asking about 
as far as this ecosystem? I don't think that there's a lot of um, asking questions. I think there's just a lot of observing, right? So what small banks typically look at what the big banks are doing, and they're looking at what regulators have given the thumbs up to. And right now, there's just a lot of talk, and there's not movement. So while everybody is preparing for this new world of digital assets, the reality of it is, is that regulators aren't there yet. And so there's not going to be a lot of movement and playing and risk taking in that space from small banks until you get the thumbs up until there are regulations in place. And so there's a lot of learning and watching and seeing where it's going and making sure that you're prepared. Um, But but that's really the state of play as it relates to small banks and and cryptocurrency. And did you see the you know, the FDIC's request for information regarding future and current um, virtual currency plans for banks. Was that encouraging to you at all? Or did you see it as something, you know, more of like the talking, less of the doing? What was your reaction from from your vantage point at MBA on that? I think it is a step in the process that's not the end where we need to be, right? I, I think they're still trying to figure it out. Um, there's movement, which is good, right? I think it's another sign that there is movement, but there's still so far to go. Just from a messaging perspective, so much, I've gone to so many cryptocurrency kind of thought leadership events where I've sat in the audience and like a key advertised talking point has been poverty alleviation, helping the underbanked. And you're kind of, Front row center on that. Like, do you feel like the true potential on that has been reached yet or is it still more conceptual? Yeah, I think the jury is still out. The reality of it is, is that, you know, cryptocurrency could be those things, just like fintechs promise to be democratization of access. But the jury is still out. Right. It takes one good crash or one good uh, event that could change everything. So it's to me, it's still too early to see whether that they can deliver on what's promised. Right. And so turning more towards you and less towards the industry, I was on a podcast this week and they asked me a question at the end, like, what does the next generation of bankers look like? And I thought it was such a good question. I kind of want to recycle it and turn it towards you. Like, what do you see as the future of bankers um, in the United States or in MDIs and CDFIs? Are they younger? Are they more diverse? Are we at a good state right now? You know, what's your what are your thoughts here? I think most industries are going to be younger and more diverse. I think that's the key. Um, When I think about the future of banking, I think it is really going to be centered around two big things. The first is technology. If you do not have the technology that you need to provide customer access and to provide various products, then you're, you're going to die on the vine, right? So I think technology is going to be centered. Those that are able to utilize it and optimize it are going are gonna to be here and they're going to be thriving. I think the second big piece, particularly when I think about um, small banks and minority banks, Another part that is central is millennials. You've really got to be able to capture millennials because the way that they think about engaging with the traditional banking system is different. They have eight or nine different apps on their phones. They, you know, just the way that they engage with the industry is totally different. And so you've got to be able to capture that. And a key part of capturing them is through technology. If you don't have an app, then, you know, nobody's even really checking on you in a number of ways. And so I think technology and being able to capture the millennials because your base is aging out. These legacy customers are leg- are aging out. So you've really got to be able to get a good, strong handle and have a strategic plan around millennials 
and technology. So we might see the Gotta next bank in the to, metaverse. Uh, <laughs> right? Shout out to the Gen Z, though. Um, you know, truly the final generation. Yeah. It's, generation. And, and I then have to stop saying millennial. Alpha. It's next gen. You know, whatever this next generation is, is the next gen. Um, that's the reality of it. And then it goes from gen, it goes to a generation alpha, I think. Yeah. Which is wild. We go back to, to letter A. Yeah. But I wanted to turn to you just personally to get like a little bit deeper into what got yeah. you into this space. Like, it's so impressive that you've, you know, we met at Milken yeah. last year where a you year were, uh-huh. I was like, wow, she seems so cool. And I went up to you and that's actually how I met Kate as well. We all met out in California. Um, although ironically, we were all in DC and didn't know each other yet. So it's kind of cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what, um, I mean, how, how do you feel like you got to this space that you are? How did you channel your interest in, you know, financial services and what advice do you have to other, you know, maybe young women who are on this career career trajectory? Yeah. So my path in financial services was unplanned. And so I think for me, the greatest lesson is to lean in and to be ready, right? To be flexible. And that's hard for me. I'm a, I'm a, a type A. So I like to have my plan from A to Z together and financial services was not a part of my plan. But the way that it, it all started for me is I started in civil rights. Um, and so that is kind of deep in my DNA. I started at the NAACP Washington Bureau, went to law school. And when I got out of law school, I ended up going to Aiken Gump. And I was a part of the Congressional Investigations Team, which is the team that is representing you when you're being hauled in front of Congress. And I was there when the market crashed. So that was my first introduction to financial services was 2008, the crash. And it was just so interesting to see the industry up close and personal and how it was dealing with this and responding to the crisis. And then you fast forward 10 years later and I'm landing at J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and then was recruited there to, to the National Bankers Association, where I'm able to bring all of my experience around financial services and my root and start and civil rights together to really help minority banks close the wealth gap. And so it's just was been it was an interesting journey. The only thing that was on my plan was to be a lawyer. And am I a practicing lawyer today? No, but (laughs) I'm in DC where everybody is a lawyer, it seems. So um, there's, there was no straight plan. I think just be intentional about what it is that you're doing and be open to changes. Yeah. I think having more people in financial services who don't come from, you know, an econ degree or, Mm -hmm. you know, necessarily an MBA, I think all of that is, you know, the final piece to the next generation of bankers is, you know, having civil rights background, having, you know, whatever it is that you're coming to the table with, all of that is diversity too. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a different lens of diversity and all of that adds to depth of knowledge and breadth of reach for products and banking services and who it can reach to. But you're insanely inspiring, Nicole. Seriously. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, massive thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always great to hang out with the two of you. Yeah, hope to have you on again soon, either in California, New York, or D.C., wherever you're on your speaking tour. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you.